Welcome to Hollywood Already Did It, a weekly movie podcast analyzing films that have been remade, rebooted, adapted, sequelized, or otherwise unoriginal. We're here to see if those ideas are worth retreading and worth bringing back. However, this week, we are breaking our own rules and talking about Us, the second movie from Jordan Peele. As always, I'm your host, Blake Schultz, and with me today is Matt Kanopka. Hey, how's it going, man? No one told me we were breaking rules today. But... Oh, they're all broken. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> A lot of unexpected twists and turns. Now I'm really excited. We're going to untether ourselves from the usual rules of this podcast. I uh, see what you did yeah, there. Yeah, see? Because that's what they say in the movie. Uh, how's it going? <laughs> that's good, man. This is going to be a really good episode. We're going to do, I guess just for our listeners, if you're just in and you want to avoid spoilers, which I think for this movie you definitely do with most movies i would hope but right <laughs> this one though is, is just such a ride that even because yeah. otherwise i think you get ahead of yourself because there's so much thematic imagery in the movie that even if that is spoiled for you you're already trying to guess what the movie is before you're even in there right well i mean it, it's that um sixth sense syndrome you know i kind of l- related to where it's like if you go into that film knowing there's a major twist, you're questioning from minute one, what's the twist? Yeah, what are we doing? What's really happening? But So we're going to do a kind of general discussion of the movie Us, thoughts, a review, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Then we're going to get into spoilers and some analysis. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about other directors' second movies and avoiding or suffering from their sophomore slump and how Jordan Peele has avoided it. And then to close out the show, as we usually do, will be a quick box office analysis and the you know thesis question of the show is do we need movies and stories like this and normally that works more with a reboot and a sequel but i think this is another movie worth bringing up that topic for sure matt what did you think i loved it man i i think us is an interesting case and i know we'll probably dig into this a little bit more but um you know, so far the reaction seems relatively positive, but then there's also a little bit of uh, cynicism in there as well, because I think that with us, the difficult thing is Get Out was such a huge hit in terms of just thematics, what it was trying to say, actual box office, and so I feel like us is kind of being held up to a lot of expectations, you know? Right. Um, so I know that when I first walked out of this, I, I was living a little bit of that where it's like you walk out and you go I know I really liked that but you can't help but have the first thought be but do I equate it to get out was it better than get out like you're always comparing to the previous work and you know after it kind of sat for a couple nights and I let it digest I realized yes I think I do enjoy this film more than get out I, I because what when Jordan Peele does here for me, being a big horror fan is the epitome of what makes a great horror film. It isn't just entertaining, which get or which us is. Us on the surface is a hugely entertaining, surprisingly funny, scary, thrilling horror movie. But underneath the surface of that, it's such a complex film that there is so much to unpack with it that this requires multiple viewings. And I think that each time you go into it, you're going to walk away with something new you've discovered to appreciate more. So Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it exactly. We do, yeah. unfortunately, compare everything to something else. There's always, always going to be this historic... Because even when I think we were discussing, you know, Jordan Peele, is it the next Hitchcock? Is he the next mm-hmm. master of horror? Is it this? 
you even suddenly start to bring us into these conversations of like, well, is it as good as The Shining or as good as Birds or as good we, as Psycho and Halloween? We do it with and, literally everything. I mean, I, I've been seeing uh, comments on Twitter with people being like, hey, you know, let's remember that it's a separate thing from Get Out. And of course it is. We all know that. But it's human nature to compare, especially when it comes to art. You know, like we look at sequels. We're always going to compare the part four to part one, you know? Right. It has, how far has it gotten away from the franchise? That sort of thing. So it's only natural that we do that. But I think in this case, luckily enough, it turns out that us does completely stand on its own and, you know, is a great film. Yeah. So. And I loved, I mean, just top to bottom, this is a movie masterfully made. Yes. The way it's shot, its art direction, the acting, just Lupita Nyong'o in this movie kills it <laughs> crushes it is incredible and there's a one specific thing about it that really kind of got me thinking of when i was studying acting in theater mm. and they would tell you a lot with your character to you know pick an animal mm. what kind of an animal is it and then you should watch that animal examine how it moves and what it does and why it does it that way and bring that characteristic to your character and i always kind of threw that away and was like, I'm just going to hit my mark and say my lines. And right, I'm not right. going to be like, well, you know, I was a snake in this scene. <laughs> Slithering through uh, the <laughs> Right. But the way Lupita Nyong'o moved and acted in her, I guess, other form. Do they have a name, these, the, these they, creatures? The others do have a name. Uh, in her case, her other is referred to as Red. As Red. Yeah. yeah. So the way Red moves... I just needed to know what animal she was thinking of because right. it's it's so like precise and it almost feels like the footage is sped up and it isn't. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's calculated and mechanical and conniving and just so off-putting and creepy. Yeah, I I like that you mentioned the animal thing because first of all, just just focusing on the others, you know, we'll. Uh you also have Winston Duke as his other Abraham, uh, Elizabeth Moss is, or no, not Elizabeth Moss. I'm sorry. Um, Shanhadi, Shahadi Wright Joseph, her other is Umbre, and Evan Alex, his other is Pluto. Anyway, what's so fascinating about these is you mentioned Red and just the way she moves, and then you have uh, Duke's Abraham, who's kind of like this big lumbering sort of Hulk monster, you know? Uh, uh, Shahadi as Umbre is kind of like a cheetah like. You know, she's yeah. very she's very quick and sort of gleeful in the chase, it feels like. It's like, like. a hyena. Exactly. It reminds you of the hyenas in The Lion King. Right. Well, and they mention the fact, too, that she's always laughing. You know, like she... And, and you see throughout the film, more than any other, she always has, like, this huge grin on her face, which really creeped me out, by the way. The actress is phenomenal oh, that yeah, plays that character. Um, and then uh, Evan Alex is Pluto. You know, he has kind of like... He's very low to the ground, almost sort of... Uh, I don't know, like spider insects, like you know, it's so. So they do have a lot of those attributes. It's very fascinating. Um, but even just going with Lapita's uh, main character, Adelaide, I think that's how you say it, right, Adelaide. Yeah. Um, what I loved about this is that you know throughout the film you see her revealing more of a primal side of herself, and and we don't quite know why at first. You know, most for most of us. But eventually you kind of figure it out. But throughout the film, you just see her with each kill just getting a little bit more animalistic, you know, a little more grunting and snarling and just becoming more savage. And like, you know, it's through that that you realize this film is a very primal movie. Yeah. Which I love. <laughs> right. There's so much. One thing I liked, I guess, comparing it to Get Out 
again, mm. is that where Get Out to me had a very clear thesis and message. And you could really kind of just go, well, this is what it's about. Right. It, it, right there on the surface for right. you. Right. Which I don't think is a bad thing. And no. in many ways, it's a great thing. Sometimes I like to go to a restaurant and get food that I'm getting. Right. <laughs> this movie was going to a restaurant and they were like, you know, we have American well, food and Mexican food and Cuban food. And we're going to well, mix all of it together. Well, I mean, it's almost too like kind of going there and being like, okay, this is going to be a seven course meal and you're just going to be surprised with each dish that we bring right. you. You know? Um, which I, I like that you say that because you're right. Like Get Out is very different in that sense as well, where they're both complex films that have a lot to dig through. But Get Out, right on the surface, we know this movie is about racism in America. Right. There's no doubt about it. That's what the plot is about 100%. <laughs> yeah. And this um, movie is about so many things. So many but things. <laughs> to the point that I was going to say. Uh, that one had that clear thesis, and this one almost also got into more ideas of psychology and the id and the self and yes. having different sides to who you are and letting things out. There was kind of a, a lot of interesting moments in the beginning of suppressing the sun. You know, he's being weird, but we shouldn't, you know, like, don't let him just go and dig those holes. Like, get him over here. Always watch him. Da, 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 da. And when right. we get to his other, it's this unchained, animalistic the way he moves and like clicks mm. this weird, like purring that he does. Yeah. It kind of freaks me out. <laughs> it, it's the same way, you know, with uh, the daughter who's there. Well, you should go run, run on the sand, do this, do this. They're like pushing people to do things. And when we get to their others, they're not encumbered by that. And they just are, there right. is no societal pressure or familial pressure to be a certain way. They just inhibit well, whatever they want to do. Well, well, and it's even less a little bit of what they want to do. It's more like they're just kind of being forced into a routine, the others, you know, yeah. because they're essentially, we're doing spoilers, yeah, so they're essentially right. copying, you know, everything going on on the surface. Um, so, no, it is interesting how they're just sort of like passengers, you know, along for right. the ride of life, whereas our, our main characters, their quote-unquote real selves, uh, like you mentioned, are all being forced into these sorts of pressures, you know, Lupita herself is forced into this, uh, dancing, you know, like that's a way that she's pushed to become something in society. And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's always for when they're pushing the real characters, I guess the, the main heroes, the people right. we're following. We'll call them that the heroes. I think yeah. it's easier to say. It's really, cause otherwise <laughs> you just keep like, well, what do I want to call it? They, uh, the heroes um, and the others. We'll go with that. Yeah. That, yeah. So when you're, Following the heroes, when they're being pushed, it is for their betterment. It is like, well, we want you to succeed and go run. And, and you find out very quickly in the movie for Lupita, it's, well, we want you to uh, do art and dance so that you can communicate and tell your story and be this whole person. Uh, with the son, it's this kind of almost normalization to who he is. And, mm. you know, even Winston Duke is pushing her to come back here and go to this beach and do all these things and get out and be somebody else, but it's all supposed to be positive. Right. And I think when you get to the others, they're all almost getting pushed. And to them, it's, it's negative. These almost same things that I, I feel like that was a very just expressive way of like, you know, we do all these things to push you to, for your own betterment, but it could be detrimental sometimes if we're not really understanding what's going on. Right. And I mean, you can actually, and, and so what I love with talking about a film like this is there's so many different interpretations of what's going on, you know, 
And so just bouncing off what you said, I think it's interesting in that you could look at what Red initially tells Lupita when the others break into the house and sit them all down casually in front of the fireplace and be like, listen, here's what's about to happen. Uh, I love how Red lists off how uh, she was forced into this relationship with the other Abraham because Lupita has the relationship with uh, Gabe in real life. You know, and then she's forced into having this daughter and forced into having this son. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of look at that as like, especially when it comes to, well, yeah, when it comes to the whole family dynamic, I look at that as maybe an interpretation of society and how we're sort of pushed to this idea of marriage and having kids and procreation, you know. And um, and granted, it, it probably goes further beyond that, but I just like this idea that we're commenting on how you know, we have all these pressures to push us into these multiple different things. And these ideas yeah. are like the first 10 minutes of the movie. Right. <laughs> like, no, I that's know. What that's what's <laughs> crazy about it. It's like we're, we've only just begun to scratch the surface of this film. You know? Yeah. And I, I, I think just right before we get into spoilers, my last kind of general idea on it as a horror movie, I liked it was there almost weren't any jump scares. It was all tension and tone and gripping you and maybe my only kind of issue with that is those moments are so good yeah that every now and then there were some comedy beats where i was like i i I wanted to stay here and be scared (laughs) (laughs) so so this is this is the one area that i think peel is going to find himself criticized for most throughout his early film career because you know like let's keep in mind like jordan peel comes from a comedy background and get out his first film or had, had or his first horror film had a lot of issues with that. That was a major criticism of get out was that the comedy didn't always quite match the tone of the film or right. it felt a little forced or shoot in there, which, you know, I, I, I go 50, 50 on it. I enjoy the comedy in that film, but it does take away from the horror here and there. The same thing happens in us, but I think to a lesser degree, I do think that the comedy's there. It does spoil that tension a bit. Uh, or I actually think the film faltered, and maybe this is a bit nitpicky when it comes to the comedy, is that I found that there were uh, more moments than I'd like that are unintentionally funny. <laughs> and, right. You know, like my my theater couldn't help but laugh a bit when uh, when the other Abraham is grunting across the lake at someone, and it's not it's it's meant to be taken seriously. It's meant to be scary, but just. The execution of it is a little, it, it, it's a little giggly, you know? <laughs> yeah, there, well, there's always going to be something, I think, inherently almost comedic in a lot of these horror movies. Because, there is. And that's part of the charm, though. <laughs> right. But even, yeah. like, watching, if that happened to you, if anybody was chasing you and growling that way, <laughs> you would be terrified. But oh, to really watch yeah. somebody do that is... It, it's kind of it, silly. It's like watching them with their pants down, you know? Right. It's a little embarrassing, but... No, I, I see what you're saying. And again, that's the charm of these movies, you know? But I do think that for for those who... Or, or you know, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I agree with you. There are moments where, like, the tension is undercut a bit by the comedy. Yeah. and I, Unintentional or not. And so. it didn't inhibit my enjoyment of the movie at all. Yeah. Like, it's something I almost have to bring up when someone asks, well, did you have any problems? And I'm like, oh, there was comedy in the movie. I haven't thought about it because of all of these other things that I'm thinking about that are great with it. I do also mm. think the difference between Get Out's comedy was that it was all 
almost contained in another world. Like he was always these phone calls right. with the characters. So you kind of went, oh, well, that's he's over there. He doesn't know about the danger and is like just living his life. Right. And in this movie, it's in the middle of the danger. Mm-hmm. There's like whole, the one that sticks out to me, and I don't really think this is a spoiler and we're about to go into that territory anyways, but they're all in the car and Lupita Nyong'o gets out and Winston dude's like, oh, we're just going to get out of the car? She's out of the car. We're all out of the car now. And I was like, right. You and should all be very worried right now. <laughs> yeah. And that, and that is where it falters a bit. You know, I think as the film goes on, I do think the characters become a little bit too, uh, we'll call it comfortable or nonchalant about the situation. You know, like, cause it is, it's a terrifying situation. I mean, we're look. well, we're not doing spoilers yet, but we're looking, you know, at a massive, horrible thing happening here. Right. And and they are very like once once they kind of realize that they have the ability to fight back against these things, they do kind of seem to be overly confident from that point. Yeah, you know? they all take out like one or two and do like a body count scene yeah. at a party. Who's like, yeah, that's. The, the, the other's overall <laughs> I, body count, though, is way higher than your guys's. <laughs> right, right. There's moments like that or like... And then there's just little tongue-in-cheek imagery, you know, that isn't really a joke, but just yeah. imagery where, like, um, you have the whole family watching the news where, meanwhile, there's an other dead body just <laughs> laying on a coffee yeah. table right in front of them. And, you know, it's just kind of like a, a furniture piece at that yeah, point. They, so. they normalize the situation... Pretty quickly. Yeah. Even even just seeing their doppelgangers, it's amazing how quickly they just go, well, I guess there are doppelgangers and we should get away from them. You know, but... but Which there, I guess you would do, right? It would be like a fight or some, flight situation. Yeah, look, you know, as someone who's just been like, just consumes these films, it's refreshing a little to see something like that. Like, I... You never want to have the characters too easily accept something, sometimes because we, we want to see that struggle, but... At the same time, I mean, how many times have you watched a vampire or a werewolf or a zombie movie where the characters for 90 minutes straight are like, it's not a zombie, there's no way that's possible, and you're just, in your head, you're like, it's a fucking zombie, man. It's a... Do you fucking watch movies? It's a problem that some of the Halloween movies get into. It can't be Mike Myers again. It's not him. Right, it's not Mike Myers again who killed 30 people in a hospital. (laughs) Or Scream by, like, the fourth Scream movie when they're like, could it be the Ghostface Killer on the anniversary of these deaths? And you're like, yes. Let's do the movie now. It's like, yes, it absolutely <laughs> is, people. Come on. So you're 100% right. I do agree with that. Yeah. But I suppose, too, you don't, I guess in that moment, even have time to think about those things. You would just kill them and survive and then figure it out later. Like, right. And, and that's the thing, too, is, you know, when they break into the house, they're not all just going to sit down and whisper to each other, like, are these our doppelgangers? What like, what's what going is, on with this? Where do you think these guys came from? No, they're sitting there and they're like... Okay, this is us, and uh, what the fuck is about to happen right now? (laughs) And this is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. All right, so let's get into the meat of this movie then. So spoilers are coming, theories are coming. I'd skip ahead, I don't know how long it'll be, a few minutes, 10, 15, 20, 30. Skip (laughs) until we're clearly not talking about it, or pause the movie, go see it, which most of America has done. And well, uh, according to the box office, <laughs> right? Which, yeah, statistically, you've seen the movie, <laughs> um, or someone else has ruined it for you already, <laughs> right? I'm amazed how few spoilers I have seen on Twitter. Like, I've like opened up a few, and I'm like, oh, wow, people are really being like, yeah, you know, with certain films, people are just respectable, which is great, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so here we go, spoiler time. Mm. So, I don't even know where to begin, right? Like, <laughs> uh, well, here's so, uh, we can start with an easy one, right? Yeah. 
your thoughts on the twist. Do you want to just jump into that? Let's because get this right is into some- the twist because this is uh, one thing that I just was so far ahead of. Yeah. And it almost, it didn't really take away my enjoyment of the movie, but I was like, ah, I bet it's this. Mm-hmm. Which for me is fun. Like I was saying this to a coworker of mine. I was like, you know, I used to watch movies with my friends. We'd rent them at Blockbuster. And we would try to be like, what do you think? It's going to be this, right? It's going to be this. It's going to be this. It's going to be this. And it's almost part of the fun sometimes. For sure. But it also doesn't hinder, I think, what the movie is trying to get at. Where sometimes something like a Glass mm-hmm. saves its twist to the last 15, 20 minutes. And then you go, well, that's the most interesting part of this entire movie. Right. I had to go on this long walk for you to 90 minutes later position me a much more interesting movie. That's very mm-hmm. frustrating. Right. Um, it also, but you do kind of, I think, figure it out quickly and the way it's directed doesn't bother you. So the twist, of course, is that Lupita Nyong'o has been the other the entire time mm-hmm. and that she is actually fighting her original self. They were switched. Uh, do they give a time year for that? Uh, they do actually. I think I think in the film it's like 1986, okay. something like that. Because I yep. did come in a little late. I got right when she was meeting her other in the Hall of Mirrors. Oh, so you just missed? Yeah. So the I, whole I first yeah. Few minutes. <laughs> yep. Uh, I've caught up on what it is, so I I yeah. know what's going on. But that's almost why too. Like I sat down with my popcorn. I looked up, and I was like, oh, she's meeting the other. Oh, is that girl in the trailer? That was Lupita Nyong'o as a girl. Oh, I bet this is the twist. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah. So going along with what you said, I think what's interesting here is, yes, it doesn't take away from the movie. I, I can say that flat out easily right away um, because there's something to enjoy about suspecting that. Because, again, it's not like the film fl- tells us this right. is what happened. You you still get to play the game with yourself throughout of whether or not you're right or wrong, you know. Um, but... And so it's fun because believing that you get to see like, okay, how is Lupita acting throughout this film? And that is where I think it really sells it uh, in this because you have Lupita doing all these little things like you were talking about earlier where she's like, you know, killing another and you see her like, and like just start snarling and just becoming a whole other like thing almost. And it's those moments that are fun if you already suspect that, she is an other because then you're sitting there like, Oh my God, like this is it. Like we're seeing it right here. You know, the examples of that. And you catch so many great moments. Like when, uh, mm. you know, she's not talking. The reason she's not talking is, you know, they all believe it's because of this trauma when she went missing she, for 15 minutes, walking away from her parents at the carnival. Yep. She's just learning English. She's just <laughs> learning English. Yep. It's, t- it's a very creepy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even then pick up on the small little details of like, I just want my daughter back. And you're like, oh man, it's th- right. th- that's never happening for you. Right. <laughs> um, or when she's talking to the uh, the white family at the beach mm-hmm. and they're trying to have small talk. And she's like, oh, are you okay? She's like, well, I'm just not good at talking like this. Right. It- it's almost sociopathic. Mm-hmm. I'm not good at just breaking down and being here. I, I she, have to be occupied with something. Right. She's disconnected almost from being a human being because in a lot of ways she isn't. Right. You know? um, but so in terms of how it is a little bit spoiled though, I will say I, I wish the editing hadn't been so kind of on the nose with it, you know, because it does, when you're introduced to this right away and it's 1986, 
And then she runs away and we hear the whole thing of like you were just talking about with, uh, oh, I just want my daughter back. That's what her parents are saying. And then we cut to all these years later. We still kind of go back to it once in a while. You know, Lupita's right. still having these images. And once, once the film begins going back to that again and again, we know, okay, eventually there will be a reveal with this. And it, I think Peel gives it away a bit with that. Because you know that those are going to add up to something, these scenes from the past. Right. I think if he had just left it with the one in the beginning, um, then you're and then not go back to that, then we're kind of left just throughout of like, okay, well, this is why Lupita's a little bit off, because this happened to her. Her fear makes sense for being here. Um, but speaking and, of refreshing, yeah. I did love that there wasn't some, like, how many... Fucking clone movies, robot movies are there where the main actor and his doppelganger fight in the shadow and then one of them walks out and you're just like, what could it be for the entire movie? Or there's always... Um, <laughs> Shoot him, he's With, the clone. No, he's the clone. I, I was going to quote that exactly. There's always the which one is the real one gimmick, um, which one of my favorites is fucking uh, The Sixth Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, God. <laughs> Shoot him, he's the clone. You know, like... So, yeah, no, it's refreshing to not have done that. And, and, you know, Peel did that a lot with this movie where he just turns uh, preconceptions and tropes on their heads to where nothing that you really expect is going to happen other than that twist ends up happening. You right. Know, we're, we're almost wrong about everything else from that point. So. Oh, yeah, there was so many just like, oh, well, we're doing... I also loved her being the other because it showed you... And they only show you two home invasions, really, right? The, mm-hmm. the main family we're following and the white family. And when they break in, they really, like, fuck around with Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke and the kids. And they sit them down and they talk to them. And what right. do you want? We want to take our time. But then when you get to the other family that gets attacked, they don't take their time at all. They just no. put them down. Yeah, in an instant. The whole rest of this movie is just that these people are well-organized, have one goal, and are doing it. Yeah. And even that just makes you go, oh, it's because for them, it's this organized, we're going to make our statement and rise up. And for you, it's revenge. Right. And for, that's so great. It's awesome. Like, yeah, no. For for Red, for it being vengeance over Lupita replacing her in the real world. <laughs> right. It's it's just fantastic. Um, so I, going along with the replacement thing, I, I, I actually kind of want to ask you, uh, a theory or, or about what your, uh, theory on this is. So there's a really interesting factor here that I haven't seen a lot of talk on that I'm curious about. And that's the fact that, uh, the son, Jason, he also sort of relives what happens to Lupita in the sense that he ends up in this house of mirrors when no one's looking, ends up coming back what we can only imagine what seems like hours later because the, the time of day is changed right. a little bit and all that. Um, interesting thing. All of the clones look almost exact. Well, they do. They look just about exactly yeah. like their others, except for Jason. Jason is the only one where his other has this sort of burned mouth. And the only clue that we have to that is the fact that uh, Red says that that Jason Pluto um, likes fire. And we know that Jason himself likes fire. But that's it. That's all we have as to why that clone would look differently. So I'm wondering, do you have 
you know, maybe a thought on why that might be. I'm glad you brought this up because it yeah. was something that I didn't really think about that our, uh, our friend of the show, sometimes a co-host, my uh, co-worker Zane brought mm. up, was that he believes that Jason was switched. Yeah. That he at some point, he thinks it was when he first goes near the Hall of Mirrors and you see the first other who was the, the homeless guy who was dead and had the 111 on his forehead. Mm-hmm. He's like standing at the beach with his fingernails bloody. And he was like, oh, and it's because, you know, they're always saying like, you know, he's weird. He's already a little bit more connected to his other than everybody else's, which my interpretation of that was just youth. Yeah. You're more tethered at a young age. And as you get older, it, like a computer, it just starts to break down. Mm. Um, but the other kind of idea of it and I, you know, I'd have to see the movie again to know if that really works. But he was like, yeah. you know, there's a little bit of a time jump. He goes into the Hall of Mirrors and then it's the sun is set and he comes back out and he's different for the rest of the movie. And he doesn't really talk that much. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they burned the this real kid's mouth so that he couldn't speak. And the only reason I don't know if I buy that is because of how connected Pluto is to Red. When you first see them jump, he like massages her leg with his head like a cat and is so more primal than everybody. Mm. I do think that he knows his mom is the other at the end. And I, that's almost where to me, there's a, like a hint of nihilism in the movie of you all of a sudden have to be like, well, does it matter? Does it really matter which Lupita Nyong'o it is? Does it really matter which Pluto it is? The family still has their dynamic and all we've Mm. really done is untethered from, maybe an unhealthy side of yourself? Like, is there almost maybe an idea of like, to be whole, you do have to kill off the toxicity in your life. You have to remove that somehow. Right. Um, As for his mouth being burned, I don't really have much to theorize on it. I was trying to think because when they mention um, the daughter's birth, you know, she came out laughing Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of other religious, specifically Christianity uh, imagery in the movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. And it made me think of, you know, the virgin birth. Mary gave birth to a baby that didn't cry. Yeah. The only child that didn't cry. This is like the most fucked up version of that. Right. It didn't come out <laughs> crying. It didn't come out not crying. It came out laughing. Yeah. There's something demonic to that. Uh, Pluto likes fire. That's also a very like hell, underground, fire burning well, right, and Pluto, based off of Greek mythology, right. had a lot to do with fire, I believe. And all of them have, like, Abraham's or Abraham and Gabe are both religious names that are from, like, the same book in the Bible. Yeah. Um, yeah, Pluto coming from mythology and all these other kind of areas. So it kind of made me wonder if maybe they also mentioned she had a C-section for Jason. Mm. And that, you know, uh, Red had to do it on her own. There was nothing so, like so that. So maybe Red fucked up his mouth. That's kind of yeah. what I'm wondering. Is it is it a birth thing? Is it something and, else? And that, and that's what's interesting about it is that um, you know I I kind of like that you asked the question of does it even matter because you know I guess simply I would say no I, I don't think it does matter whether or not Pluto is switched. It's just it's just interesting to consider because Peel seems like such a you know, everything he does is so thought out. Like, it, it feels like every line of dialogue, every image has meaning. So you have to wonder to yourself, because Jason slash Pluto is such a unique character in this film, because not only is Jason the only one who figures out that Lupita is another, 
Like, he's the only one who gets it yeah. at the end of the film. And But he's also the only one that figures out that he can control the other. Yeah, he's the only one that can fully sync up to his. Right, exactly. So, so it just, there's so much going into that of why is that? Why does his look different? Could why you... does Why does Lupita, or, or why does her character Adelaide seem so connected to Jason but not the rest of her family? You know, because if you really watch this movie, like, all of her attention goes to Jason. It's well, when all about Pluto Jason. dies, mm. uh, Adelaide is like a wreck. When he backs right. into that fire, she's having a very real reaction to that. Right. As if it is the wrong one she, dying. She has a very real reaction, and Red doesn't really seem to care in the moment. And Red's yeah. also trying to take Jason. And, you know, you could say, okay, well, on the surface, it's probably just because she's trying to bring Adelaide to her. But then you also have to wonder, is she trying to get back her kid? Well, could you, you know? take this... And this is going to be kind of a reach. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it isn't. I, all, a lot of this is. Yeah. Like, uh, could you take kind of all the other ideas in this movie that are political, the hands across America, yeah. a lot of the other themes that are in it, this red coloring, these rabbits, everything he's sort of saying about the state of the nation and take that nihilistic approach and go, it doesn't matter what we do. We're just going to keep living our lives. Yeah. He uses this family right. to go, look at this huge thing that's happened to the country. They're oblivious to it. They've mm-hmm. been switched and they're oblivious to it. Right. You could argue that it's his kind of final beat to be like, here's what's happening and nothing matters. Right. Or well, is it a generational thing? Because now Jason can't talk like his mom did. Is there even maybe some sort of passing down that like, you know, it, everything kind of goes back to this Reagan era of politics with, when sure. Hands Across America happens. And all of that, it literally like trickle down economics and these other sort of things that come down and passing on to the next generation, you're passing on your trauma, your baggage, families pass on the problems they had onto the kid. There's a lot of, you know, oh, if you were raised this way, you're going to raise your kid the other way, or you're going to make the same mistakes. It, right. it could even just be as simple as like, now he can't talk. He knows that this cycle won't end. That almost even leads into uh, it, not Greek, but well, Norse mythology deals a lot with like the sins of the father and passing it down. And the first right. sign of their apocalypse is uh, the oh, damn it, the death of somebody's son. Well, <laughs> it's always the death of someone's yeah, son. It's, uh, <laughs> it's the big moment in God of War, and it's the sign of Ragnarok, and that's gonna be a, an issue for me to figure out later. But <laughs> it's like the first boss you fight in God of War. Uh, I can't remember. It's but, fine. But but well, I, I see what you're saying, and so. Yeah, I, I do think this is a very nihilistic film. I, I think that in the end there, the the idea that we're walking away with is there is nothing we can do about this. You right. Know, there, there is nothing we can do about... Uh, because, and again, we don't know necessarily that this is what Peel's intention is, but there is nothing we can do, I think, with the division in America that I do believe he's commenting on here. Yeah. Um, you know, I almost look at that hands across America thing as sort of maybe a statement on the wall or maybe i'm just obsessed with that i don't know but (laughs) i mean you could make that argument i the way i kind of looked at it was um i guess for people who don't know and i'm going to assume that now everybody who didn't know about hands across america because of this movie can now write a (laughs) thesis paper on it yeah but you know this was a movement in the in the early 60s and the idea was we're gonna stop hunger and homelessness and all these sort of things that it does say at the beginning of the movie like 
Well, so th- this is why I refer to the wall. I want to make I want to make yeah. clear my theory, so I'm please, not just like throwing, yeah, out, I don't throwing just, out crackpot bullshit. You'll have to um, stop me because I'll just run forward. <laughs> no, yeah, no, we both do. It's fine, man. So, so no, I so again, this is what's interesting because there's so many different ways to go with this, and like I I think you're spot on talking about uh, the Reagan area and politics and you know being passed on from generations, all that. What I what I look at it when I see that is that so when I look at the others. I don't just look at them as being a, a version of us. I look at them as being the worst version of us. You know, right. the the worst parts of us, our, our, uh, our inhibitions, our hatred, our anger. I, I look at them as all of those things that are deep down in the subconscious there that, you know, control us in, in a subconscious way that we don't always realize. And so when I see them all hand in hand, you know, in this giant line across America... I look at that as more like, uh, as more like anger and hatred has united in a sense where it has yeah. built this wall of hate, <laughs> you that, know, throughout America. So that was uh, pretty much how I looked at it, and I yeah. kind of thought of it as, um, you know, the Hands Across America failed when we mm-hmm. tried to do it. A, the topography of America just doesn't really well, allow for you to do it. There's well, deserts and mountains, and sure, but it was supposed to raise something like a hundred million dollars and all mm. go to these hunger relief, homeless aid things. It costs about $15 million to do and it made $15 million. So right. it, it, a cataclysmic failure that was meant to bring us together. Yeah. And well, I took this as we only come together as a nation in terror and in trauma on. and in fear. Exactly. Otherwise like, look, we'll never do it. No, exactly. Look, look, look at the nation. Like the nation as it is has been the most purest example of that right now. You yeah. Know? Like because yes, what, when has America always found itself united in war? Right. It's found itself united. The the only time not being the case is civil war. You know. Right. But we found ourselves united uh, in the Revolutionary War. We found ourselves united after nine eleven and going to war with Iraq. We found ourselves. Uh, united in the Cold War, you know, although that was a little more divisionary because we're pointing fingers at everybody for being a Russian, you know. But, right. But um, but it is always something like that. And now you're seeing that if you were to connect American citizens right now in any way, it's that we're united in the fact that we all hate somebody right now, you know. Right. Um, and yeah, when it comes to doing these good things, whether it be uh, supporting the homeless, um, uh, taking care of the poor, Healthcare, you know, and any of any of these uh, more important things going on in the world, these these existential threats that go beyond politics and all that kind of stuff. It's like pulling teeth. You can't get people to work together ever. Right. It's always about politics. There's always some sort of conflicting idea, which, again, I think plays into this doppelganger thematic here where it's like you always have these two sides that are the same but pulling away from each other so there is also this uh danger of nostalgia that i almost took away from it and uh there's an author i quoted him on our episode about ready player one and his quote is there's two ways the world will end through like nuclear war and destroying ourselves Mm -hmm. or the cycle from an event to us being nostalgic about that event is getting smaller and smaller Eventually, we will be so consumed by the nostalgia of what was before that we can't even focus on what's ahead or what's present. Death by nostalgia. And we will just be in this same loop. And our politics right now are very nostalgic. It is a lot of make it great again. Do it again. Go back. And you have Lupita Nyong'o as a child get stuck in this traumatic event 
and not able to live her life. And it drives everything, mm. this event. And then it ultimately kills the nation. This one thing being hung up on how something used to be. Right. And trauma from like her childhood. And there's this almost weird through line of, you know, the things that happened to you then are going to be what ultimately destroy you unless you right. find a way to move on. Oh, it's funny you mention that because, I mean, I I often look at our culture as, uh, like, don't get me wrong, you know, being someone who buys in the nostalgia just as much as anybody else. Matt, this show <laughs> half the time is about nostalgia. <laughs> well, well and that's what I'm going to say is, like, we, we are these days a nostalgia-based society. That is exactly what we are, whether it be uh, film, books, toys, everything is all about the past. You know, yeah. you mentioned Make America Great Again. Yes, when it comes to politics, that's what's going on. You mentioned entertainment. Uh, I mean, how how often do we still complain about w- movies just being remakes, sequels, reboots? Um, granted, there's the occasional originality like this, which is awesome. Right. Um, but it, then you look at our toys. Like, look at look at Funko toys. They're all about reminding you of like, hey, remember when you loved this thing when you were ten years old? Like, no, now let's make an obsession about it and give us all your yeah. money. Like, that's... <laughs> Every BuzzFeed article is, oh, remember these toys from the 90s? Did you know you could still buy them? We have these Amazon links. And- right, we're, we're forward-thinking less, and we're more thinking, like, how can I copy what's already been done that I love, you know? Um, like, and you see it in film a lot, too, even with the original stuff, where, where a lot of filmmakers are maybe, like, in, in, in horror, for example a lot of filmmakers are going back to like this sort of 80s horror style because that's what, when you're our age and you begin making movies, that was the decade a lot of horror fans that grew up in my time really liked, you know? And by own so, Jordan Peele's own admission, it's Carpenter and Cronenberg. And it, that right. lives and breathes and Get Out and in Us. You're, you can just see it. Right, or look at the popularity of Stranger Things. You know, that's all about nostalgia with Stephen King and like. That kind if I have of to stuff, see so. that red font on one more thing, because <laughs> it's everywhere now. Everywhere I look, right. I'm like, that's the Stranger Things font. Like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> right. So you know, and the thing is, like, nostalgia isn't inherently bad itself. But when we're discussing, like you mentioned, where you can get hung up on a thing in the past and want it to be like that so much again, that yes, you see how it affects America now. Like we. <laughs> There's a, there's a certain base that wants to go back to a time where it was just, you know, white people in power. And you have the, like, Charlottesville thing where, you know, there's white groups, mar- white Nazi groups marching saying that the whites will not be replaced. You know, like, there is this whole fear of change, um, yeah. which this movie absolutely comments on. So, Oh, yeah, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, they are even... And then the, the movie, you know, on top of that, throws in all of these... Uh, biblical references and and biblical statements, which even that bleeding into the kind of political statements of the movie, I was having a conversation with a coworker and they were like, well, do you really think if he's making all these political statements, he would also be making religious statements? And I said, well, look at our politics. Mm -hmm. Isn't one of the bigger mistakes we do blending it in with not just religion, but more often than not with Christianity. Mm-hmm. And isn't one of the big problems that we say separate church and state. And we very rarely live by that. Right. It, 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 and not to mention, I mean, how can you look at this movie and not think that there's some sort of religious theme going on here? I mean, for I mean, God's sakes, you have calls herself God. <laughs> she, she calls herself God. You have, uh, you have the bum on the beach with the Jeremiah eleven eleven, which again is all about the apocalypse and the four horsemen. Um, and I was actually, you mentioned Zane earlier, I was telling him the other day, uh, that there's actually a shot that 
you unfortunately, I think, might have missed if you came in after Lu- uh, Lupita as a young girl had gotten into the funhouse, um, where she's on the beach and it's beginning to storm. And I actually, and you can find it in the trailer too, there's a moment where lightning flashes in the sky, and if you freeze frame it at the right moment, you can see there's actually like a face in the sky looking down on her. Oh, weird. <laughs> yeah, if I can find it, I'll, I'll show you a picture later I snapped. But That's wild. Yeah, but so, so you know, you look at that and I think a lot of this is playing into fate. You know, like this is, yeah. this is a film about fate and how we as a human race are destroying ourselves because of this inability to move on or... You yeah. know, work together, and I don't know. It's just... So then, let me ask you this, because yeah. we we know... I, I'm, like, trying to kind of tread over some of the stuff that's been talked about a lot and still added. Like, we now, I think everybody knows the Jeremiah 1111. Yeah. The four ones are... It's the first sign of the apocalypse. Almost similar to what we were saying with Pluto and Norse mythology. Every religion and mythology has this, like, you'll see these things, and it means the end of times is coming. Mm. And we literally look at the clock and see 1111, and the next big thing that happens in the movie is the home invasion, and it starts. Yeah. Uh, I think that's about as far as that symbolism goes. I've heard a lot of people posit that, like, you know, that bum was God, and it's, you know, that now God is dead, and this is happening. And well, I mean, you know, talking about the four horsemen, it's a right. family of four. That's it's a dead. family of four. Yeah. <laughs> Pluto, Abraham, Red, you know, you could look at them as the horsemen if you want. <laughs> it's also interesting that they all have biblical or mythological names, Except red. Well. And red is currently the, like, color of the people in power in our politics. That the, yeah. their leader is literally red. Mm-hmm. And, and what is her message all about? Going back to the way it was? Yep. Her politics are, or ideas are based on hatred, anger, <laughs> fear. <laughs> and that's almost... Uh, so let me ask you my first point first. Um, yeah. So she says a lot in the movie... That either they see her as God or that she has seen God or she is God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes out in the final fight between the two Lupitas. And they're cutting with this dance. And I thought that we were going to see something in the dance that was going to make the fight make sense. Because at one point she like taps her leg and is like, well, you know, I peaked at 14. Right. So I was like, oh, she got hurt. We're going to see her get hurt. And the one who actually did the dance is going to get hurt and the other one's going to have never had that and, and win or whatever. And none of that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but then she says, and then we danced and I saw God. But then the image they show you is them watching her dance. And there's almost an idea of that's when they all realize we're all being manipulated and controlled. Yeah. She is different. She is our God. Did I miss something? Did she not say I saw God or was there something else in the dance that would be like God or? No. So I think, uh, um, <clears throat> I think it's looking at the word God a little bit too literally maybe. So, yeah. you, so when I look at that scene, I look at it more like she saw God, you know? And so when you go, when you go back to all of these biblical stories, it always revolves generally around a character. Well, <laughs> I'll say a character. I don't mean to offend religious people, but a character. Characters uh, can be real. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, fictional, non-fictional, whatever. A character um, who claims to have seen God, whether it be in a vision, in a dream. You know, they always have this claim that they've seen or spoken with God. And then it's everyone else looks at that person almost a little bit as God on earth. You know, right. God's vessel, God's... Uh, uh, <laughs> Son, God's daughter, whatever, you know. Um, like, you look at Christianity, 
Jesus Christ was looked at as a God by his followers, but he was the son of God. He was his vessel, you know? So I guess you could look at this as like, um, Adelaide or red. You could look at it as red sees God, but everyone else has seen her as that disciple, that leader, that Christ, you know, that they want to follow and sacrifice themselves for whatever it is. Um, and you could all, you could even look at it another way where it's like, again, if you want to go into the apocalypse and the four horsemen, maybe she's the Antichrist right. looking well, at the devil, you know? I think that's also the almost like next interpretation of it because there is, you know, a literal ascension to what they believe. I don't know if they say heaven, but you'd have to assume that them coming onto earth would be their heaven. Yeah. Um, showing that either it's like we're willing to kill to get to heaven, we're willing to kill to get to where we want, we're willing to destroy and break and, and all that. Mm. Uh, but it also is they're coming from the underground, which is where we would consider hell to be. Right. Is this, are, is she the Antichrist and not a Jesus figure and a more satanic figure? And mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's a lot you can wrap in there. I think, but yeah, I, I mean, you could <laughs> with the themes in this film. I mean, we could talk about this all day because there's just, there's do you so want to talk much. about the rabbits really quick and then get out of this part? Or do you have yeah. any other? Oh, uh, no, I don't have any other, you know, mostly what I have is just questions because, um, which again, we can talk about in a second if you want here and touch on the rabbits first, but like, I have questions on like, you know, how Jason manipulates his shadow, how the manipulation of shadows works, why the shadows were created. That's right. And so you all you really get there is what uh, Red's own theory is, right? Yeah. In, in this info dump in the end of the movie. Well, right, because that's the thing. Red doesn't even know. Right. Like, she ends up there at a point where this is even happening, yeah. you know? So. Right. And so the, the movie opens, and I, I'm, you know, this is what I was told. And it has that, like, under under America, there's all of these unused networks, sewers, mm. unused basements, things that don't work anymore, and we just ignore them. It's almost yeah. the same thing when people talk about space exploration. Someone's like, did you know the ocean also hasn't been explored? And it's like, yes, everywhere there's <laughs> things we don't know what they are. Oh, I, uh, I think you can look at it, too, like... Um there's just a lot of forgotten parts of society. Yeah. You know, which is how I kind of look at the tunnels thing, like the the homeless and, you know, the quote unquote dregs of society, like they're just kind of left buried and forgotten. Right. So. Yeah. And there's a lot of, because even, you know, and I think it was in the Reagan era, people would reference homeless people as like others and the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that kind of plays into that. And then even like the mole men was another word that was getting thrown around there. And that also comes it, from like, a Wrinkle in Time and H- all Horror these other fans places. have also joked about uh, <laughs> Red and her group being Chud. I don't know if you're familiar with oh. Chud. <laughs> yeah. But the homeless that became monsters <laughs> yep. in the movie. I mean, that's, you know, it's all in there. Uh, yeah. But what she tells us is they were trying to clone people in an effort to control the people above. Right. This is where, to me, like some of the logic of the story itself is sort of put to the side in place of themes and statements. This is where you have to go with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's like you said, the rules aren't really well defined. Why can Jason sync up to his other and no one else even like accidentally does it or has an attempt to do it or Mm. why are, where are all of these underground networks and they're all coming up? How the how is all of this really working? Were they all? Is it a perfect one to one ratio? Because then, what is there a perfect map of America underground? And my other is just always 
six feet below me or whatever. Yeah, man, he's just underneath the apartment right now. Just, yeah, just like, just sitting dude, at a table. Yeah, just clipping his nails, just waiting for, <laughs> waiting then, for his moment. You know, I go then, like, to what end? Yeah. You're cloning people to control people to what end? Are they implying that, is there a statement on, so, the, like, voters? <laughs> like, well... Maybe. Or is there I a mean, man in a is there a man in a white coat right now watching this on the news going, I told them <laughs> Marty, it was a terrible idea. You know, we are we are missing that necessary scientist scene <laughs> to tell us exactly what happened. There's but. just gonna be someone like, Mr. President, I know what's going on. I was there, I made the clones. <laughs> we wanted to control them for food. Right. What? Just like a ten minute exposition dump. Like <laughs> and you know, thank God Peel avoids that. I'm actually really glad that's not I almost want it because I'm like, just tell me these few little things. Right, because you just want to know. Yeah, you know, I mean, again, there's just, there's so many different interpretations, which is what makes this a great film. I mean, we're going to, you're going to watch this a second and third time and probably have whole other ideas of what's going on in this movie. Oh, yeah, I think you can, Um, it's like listening to a song. Sometimes you listen to the guitar and sometimes you listen to the drums and sometimes you, the vocals, this is you, every time you're going to look at something else when you see this movie. Right. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you can, sure. You mentioned voter suppression. Uh, You could possibly look at it like that. I don't know. You know, it's whatever it is at the very least, this is a forgotten part of the world that we're talking about here. So you can look at that as disenfranchised voters, uh, suppression of minorities. Like you can, there's all different interpretations, but yes, the question is, why were they doing this? To what end? And and how are these clones controlling the above world? My <laughs> other weird question, and because yeah. you know cloning isn't real. Um, well, well, we're getting there. Like stem cells. I don't, I don't, and, I don't know if we're that far off of cloning we did, humans. That sheep died pretty fast. <laughs> he did, but, he, but we made him. And but we did it. <laughs> Which is also could that just be a weird like science thing? Hey, we just did it to do it, but. I kind of right. go, as far as my knowledge of cloning goes, which is incredibly limited. <laughs> You're uh, not a scientist? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't ever wear my white coat anymore. No. Uh, I, it feels like they would need, like, blood or DNA. And so I just am kind of like, is this that old joke in The Simpsons where they're like, well, if you've ever handled a penny, the government has your DNA. <laughs> like, See, I, I actually like to imagine, like, a little scientist just sneaking into your house and, like, cutting a piece right. of hair off in the middle of the night. <laughs> and then if, if this program is shut down, um, how are the new ones showing up? I mean, I assume that, like, you know, Jeremiah and Red are having sex to make the children. Is you it, would think so, yeah. Is it – are there, like – sperm and reproductive organs working the exact same way too to be like it's the same sperm and the same egg and so jason will look the same see and, and this is the point where it's like you know because if this is shut down there's no new clones right and, and there <laughs> there's always this point in a, a fictional genre film whether it be horror sci-fi even action where you just kind of have to say to yourself this is what they've told me and i'm either gonna go with it or I'm gonna let it bug me until yep. the point where I hate this movie. And like in this case, I don't think there is an explanation that would satisfy any of us. Which is why I'm glad that Peel leaves and you, that out yeah. because because what what are they gonna say that's gonna that's gonna satisfy the question you just asked of how are they procreating and having the child come out exactly the same? Oh man, it doesn't. There's exist. no explanation for that. You, know? <laughs> you just have to be like, all right, sure. Right, you just gotta be like, okay, well that's what we're doing. Now, yeah, so. and, it, and I think if this movie wasn't so heady already. 
I wouldn't even ask these questions. I think because you're already making me be like, well, why the rabbits and why scissors? I then go, and why the banging? So I love that you bring up that point because something I want to make sure I mention while we're here is that, and I kind of mentioned a little bit in the beginning, but again, what I really love about this film is that I think that for a general audience member, you can just, you know, like if you're just going to a movie to just see a movie and have a good time, I think you can go into us, turn off your brain, and just enjoy a good, original, sci-fi horror home invasion movie. Yeah. You know? And you might look at the themes, and you might look at the questions we have, and be like, oh, I don't quite understand that part. But you can digest this as just a simple, entertaining horror film. Yeah. But then there's the people like us that want to go in and dissect every little thing (laughs) about it. And, And, you know, that is the point where you get to, like... You know, I, I want your listeners to understand, like, we're not necessarily degrading the movie here. It's just that it because there's so much to talk about, it raises so many questions. Right. You know, so it's not nitpicking. It's just like, cool. I just want to know. And we do this with everything, right? I mean, look right. at any superhero or Star Wars movie. You eventually, we those have been around so long that you start asking insanely stupid questions that are like, it was 1977 and they didn't care. Or you start like, giving insanely stupid explanations like Metaclorians. Right. Oh, it was this. <laughs> right. So get, let's hope there's no sequel to us right. because I don't want to find out the explanation. No, I don't. I mean, as well as... The, I don't think we'll get a sequel to this. I do think Jordan Peele will get a blank check to make another movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, no, that, that will absolutely happen. They're not going to green light in us too, but they are just going to be like, hey, just, you know, walk into Universal and just write whatever number you want. We don't care. Universal announces tomorrow, us has been expanded to a four-part franchise. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to cross it over with Get Out. You see, we've really got something to say here. Right, we have a universe now. <laughs> right. The Jordan Peele The Jordan universe. Peele shared universe and the twilight zone will be instrumental to that oh god my head would explode <laughs> i would just be so tired i don't think i'd have the energy for it you, that sentence alone may be exhausted <laughs> oh man um yeah it does you know and then of course you do ask like silly questions i've had people that i've seen just be like well what were they all down there sewing these red jumpsuits together for 30 years well, you know and and you watch so it is interesting because you do get you do begin this dissect this movie a little bit too much maybe because the answers aren't as clear, uh, which again is fine. I, I like that it leaves you wanting to ask and discuss so much. But you know you see some of those images of them just walking through this like blank hall, and I'm like, well, what do they do when they're like swimming or you know like they're on a plane well, they- like I. They showed that one room that was supposed to be the uh, the carousel, and they were all just running in circles together. Oh. Yes. Okay. That actually just made me think of something. Let, let's get back to the rabbits because yes. then, I, going into like what they're doing, there is that whole scene when it shows what they do when they're eating. And if I remember correctly, it shows them eating the rabbits, right? Oh yeah. They're the rabbits. Uh, the, so something else Zane said, he should have just been on the show. He's working though. But Damn it, Zane. <laughs> I just don't, I don't like being like, here's something I thought of, but not really. Yeah. Uh, but cause I asked Zane the same thing. I was like, why the rabbits? And I at first was like, oh, we were cloning the rabbits first. Maybe that's like easier. Maybe there's like some stem cell stuff. Uh, but you know what, what he said was, well, you know, rabbits can multiply so quickly. Mm-hmm. They're the perfect food source for them to have. Cause it will just be endless. Right. There's just always multiplying. And then I was you know, because everything is something in this movie. And I then went like, well, you know, when you think of rabbits, this was my guess in the trailer when they showed you the rabbits. And I was like, oh, well, it's it's going to be fertility. Mm. And there's something about these clones and something about this. And then in the third act, when she's going downstairs, I started really going, well, it probably isn't fertility. What else could rabbits be? 
Yeah. And I went like Easter, spring, rebirth. And I went, oh, Easter makes me think of Jesus rising out of the rock. And he literally is underground and rises and ascends mm. to heaven. Maybe we're just literally saying like, this is the cave. Right. She, Lupita Nyong'o has been crucified. She's been in this cave and she's now ascending to heaven. Yeah. And, and honestly, I don't... Yeah, more I don't mean to I <laughs> thought I did, but I maybe that's all it was. Oh, I do. I told you this yesterday when yeah. we were talking about it. I do want to bring it up. And then they kind of threw this almost eye-rolly line just because I was like, ah, oh, really? And you know, the two Lupitas are speaking, and it's, well, we all went mad down here. And I was like, oh, it's Alice in Wonderland. We're tumbling <laughs> down the rabbit hole. We're no, chasing so... the white rabbit now. <laughs> so here's the thing. I... You know what? You son of a bitch. No, so here's the thing. I think that the rabbit, and unless unless Peel comes out and tells us all, we'll never know. But Which I, think I kind that, of want him to do one day. Just like, just sit down somewhere and be like, all right, let me tell you what it is. Yeah, 10, ten years from now, just be like, okay, guys, this is what the fucking rabbit was, all right? <laughs> but but no, I think, again, what's, what's really fascinating here is the rabbit can work in every way that you just described. Right. You know, so like you mentioned, Zane mentioned that they're a food source. Okay, I'll buy that. You know, sure. You, you need you need a source that's going to actually multiply so that the well, scientists Because then Matt, we'd be sitting here and going, well, how do they eat? What do they eat? Right. How are it, they not all dead? <laughs> right, exactly. Although that could have honestly been maybe simplified by the fact that they just don't work the, clones, the same that they don't we need do. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. But, you know, we'll look past that. Um, so, yeah, you can look at it simply like, okay, well, they're just a food source. But I think it definitely goes beyond that, though, because the rabbit is such an important image in this film. I mean, for, for fuck's sake, the, the film starts off with a shot of a rabbit. Right. You know, and we slowly zoom out. So you're saying it's a sequel to The Favorite, because the last shot in The Favorite was a rabbit. Uh, <laughs> universe? No. Uh, everything's universe now. Um, no, so I think... I think that you're closer with the religious aspects, right. um, especially with the whole cave and Easter thing. Um, but there's something to me as well with that image with, it, again, it's the first image of the film. Peel is very, um, uh, he, he has a purpose to everything that he does. And the first shot of this movie is pulling out of uh, the single rabbit in a cage. And we slowly pull out and see that there are just cages everywhere full of rabbits, you know, and that's the opening shot. So, I don't know. I, I think that there's symbolism in there in, involved with cloning, involved with uh, test subjects, keeping us in cages. Right. Um, but no, if I had to guess anything, I think that the religious aspect is the best guess. It just lines up with everything else when she's right. down there. Like, we see Jeremiah again. We She talks about seeing God. She brings her son out. Exactly. But... Uh, I think the the last kind of part of this one that I want to ask your opinion on, because I had my interpretation and I've had other people be like, nah, you're crazy. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought Adelaide figured out she was the other at the end, that she didn't realize she had been switched herself mm, until she's like looking at her son and like smiles. And we see these like flat, we see all, all of it. That's when they then show you how oh, she got choked and this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. Yeah. And I even kind of thought that that was speaking back to the trauma and suppression and suppressing parts of who you are and not being whole and all of these kind of ideas. Cause she almost, she has like a smirk mm-hmm. and it, it's not like a, a malice, like I got away with it smirk, but it's almost this like, Oh wow. Like I did. Well, there you go. <laughs> Um, so no, I don't. Um, yeah. I think, I think it's an interesting theory that is certainly plausible. Um, 
The only reason I kind of get away from that a little bit is that you can tell looking back on it that her as a little girl kind of knows what's going on, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I do get the sense that she knows what happened. And again, like, you're talking about, like, we've already mentioned how she's quiet because she's learning the language, right. learning the society. Um, but also, I think it's, I think the scene where you see Adele kind of breaking down a little bit with, uh, with Duke, right? No, with Gabe. I, I think the scene with Adele breaking down a little bit with Gabe where, you know, he's kind of getting opposition for like, yeah. let's fuck, you know, and then you have Odell just staring off into the darkness for really no reason other than, as she says, she's afraid. She doesn't like right. being back here. She doesn't like being back there from the second they're there. And it, the way I look at it, that is because she knows that this is where her other is, you know? Right. Like, she knows that that entrance to where she is down there is at this beach. And so I look at it more like she's a, she can almost sense what's coming. Right. You know? Like, she knows that she's coming back to get her. But I don't know. It's an interesting thought, though. It's totally plausible. And I think the only that everything we say, I would think of something else. So this, I promise, will be my last. What okay. do you mean? <laughs> uh, they bring up these coincidences. And one of them is this Frisbee landing perfectly on the circle on the towel. Yeah. And the other ones are really just like, it's 11-11, which 11-11 o'clock isn't a coincidence. It happens twice a day, every day. It's time. <laughs> but it is a coincidence if you happen to look at the clock, right? As it's 11 Sure. <laughs> they were like, wow, crazy, 11-11. I was like, twice a day, every day. Well, you know, but it's like, but it's like if you keep waking up at 3 in the morning, you know, that's Sure. <laughs> if, he had, if, that, if somebody was waking up at 11-11 every time, sure. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. <laughs> and then that, that kind of idea of coincidences sort of dropped off. Do you think there was anything more to that or were they just trying to be like something's coming yeah I everything's think syncing up and tethering so, together so you know i'd have to look back at the back at the coincidences and what they could mean if anything i have no idea whatsoever what the frisbee landing on a blue and white star has anything to do with anything right. um but i would say that i think it's because when you look at things like the apocalypse what is the lead up to the apocalypse it's warning signs you know, right. There's the plagues and all, all the different stuff that happens. And so you can look at these as like, I don't think they got away from the coincidences. I just think that, like you said, it's the build up to it. It's the sign that something is coming to end our world. We just don't know what yet. With these old so. scissors. Yes. I love those. Those are weird. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great how the entire army of others is armed with nothing but a pair of scissors, which who knows where the hell they got all those fucking scissors. Yeah, you scissors, can ask. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's that's just, a lot of scissors, man. <laughs> there's somebody at an inventory store at a Walmart that's just like, where did all those scissors go that I ordered? Right. We must have ordered and, damn near 5,000 scissors. Right. I would say one for every American, really. Yeah. And, and they all went missing. <laughs> right. And they're and they're all very like specifically made too, you know. This is not like an average pair of scissors you get at Staples. Like. Right. They're just it's it's fine. It's yeah. like those are other ones where it's like, yeah, take it or leave it. There's Right. You can sit here and do this all day. There is a lot of other like great things to talk about in the movie, but I want to kind of get into the uh crux of what we were going to talk about with this okay. idea. Cause you know, normally the show for new listeners is uh, what Captain Marvel's out and there was a comic and we're going to talk about how that was adapted and what's going on. And you know why this story was necessary. This obviously is an original movie. I didn't want to just be like, let's compare it to get out. Yeah. Uh, so instead I want to look at kind of the sophomore slump 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a sports term. It's a music term. It's an, it's an everything term. Yeah. If you don't know what it means, basically you do something great your first out to bat and then you fuck up the second time. Or you don't. <laughs> like that's, you know, how it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a few directors that have both succeeded and failed at it and that I kind of want to touch on. Like, where do some of these people go wrong? I think we're all in agreement that Jordan Peele avoided it. And I would also like to, at the end of that, be like, here's why that worked out too. So the... Yeah. The three people that I have who suffered from it are uh, Richard Kelly, whose first movie was Donnie Darko, and he followed it up with The Southland Tales. Have yeah, you seen The pretty, Southland I, Tales? I have. He fell very hard with that one. <laughs> so I saw that movie in my very first film class. It was like, wow. And recently, Tales? Yeah, and yeah. I recently rewatched it here and was like, oh, this isn't a good movie. Yeah. It, it's, oh, no. It's visually very interesting, just not... Great. <laughs> right. The The other one is, uh, I always miss this guy's name, but I think I've got it. Neil Blomkamp. Is it that simple? Or is yeah, that I believe that's it. Great. Yeah. Uh, his first movie was District 9, the movie that I'm like, this is why we need to have 10 Oscar nomination areas because it belonged there. <laughs> uh, and then he followed it up with Elysium, which is uh, why I go, pencils have erasers. And sometimes people need to tell you not to release your garbage movie. Yeah. Uh, and then Josh Trank, whose first movie was Chronicle, which really challenged the superhero genre before it was what it was. Yeah. And then uh, challenged whether or not they could fail by making Fantastic Four. So, so we're talking about why did they fail? <laughs> Yeah, I kind of want to go in, because I, I think as I made this, I have a thought about it. It feels mm. to me, especially Neil and Josh, I don't know if you have other directors that you want to add into the stew before we... I do. I'll have a few more uh, I'll mention. I, I want to make a quick comment on my belief on why those examples might have failed. Sure. Um, or, or why you see this sort of failure in general, but... Um, so, for example, Josh Trent going from Chronicle to Fantastic Four... I can tell you some from from my perspective. I think an easy explanation there is that you go from this nobody director who makes your kind of own personal movie. Yeah, you know your own personal movie that he made with Max Landis, who wrote the script that you believe in. You know, you go out and you do that, and okay, that's going to show. And then you go on to do this, you know, this big adap- studio adaptation where the studio has more expectations for it, more that they want out of it. So you're going to kind of have this simultaneous struggle of, like, the studio has what they want from it, you have what you want from it, and it just becomes a mess, you know? Right. Uh, And so I think it's a combination of that. I think it's a combination of uh, expectations. You know, a lot of times with these films, we end up looking back on them later and saying, oh, you know, it wasn't really the failure that we thought it was. So it's like some of the examples I have for that, uh, more a horror director's focus is like, so you have James Wan came out with Saw, huge hit. Yep. And then he follows it up with Dead Silence. Nobody gave a shit about Dead Silence at the time. You know, I think at, at best that I can remember, it was, you know, at best maybe like a, yeah, it was fine. You know, but it wasn't this huge hit that Saw was. And now, like within the horror community, fans look back on that and people, there are some people that claim Dead Silence is one of the most underrated movies of all time. I don't agree with that, but I do, but I do think that, you know, it has aged well, so to speak. Uh, And same with like Clive Barker. He did Hellraiser, huge hit. He follows it up with Nightbreed. Nobody cared. Nightbreed, as far as I can remember, didn't make money at the time. No. 
Now it's this huge cult classic. So I think that, you know, there's a problem with expectations of expecting a director to live up to a certain point of their first film. And if they don't do exactly that, then it's not as well received. I think that's very true for the audience. For the audience, And that's why we as consumers can be like, you failed. Because I've built up your first, you innovated everything. And then you didn't do it twice. Which maybe your standards are a little too high if you're like, he's going to change the game again. And, And a lot of directors that we talk about like this, like Jordan Peele, we talk about them because they're these innovative, original right. thinking uh, directors. And so I think a lot of times, too, a, a part of the problem might be that like, it, it could have been so easy for Jordan Peele to come out with us and have it completely fail because it was too weird and out there for people. Right. You know, And that's what you see a lot of these times. Like These are directors telling unique stories. Sometimes they're going to work. Sometimes the audience isn't going to get it, and it's not going to work. I'm glad so, you said unique because yeah. my... I guess not counterpoint to what you said, but the, the point to the my examples and why I think a lot of these people do bomb on their sophomore slump is that when mm. you look at Donnie Darko to Southland Tales, District 9 to Elysium, and Chronicle to Fantastic Four, they're all once was a unique story, and then they did it again. Mm-hmm. Especially Neil Blomkamp is my favorite example of this because he then followed those up with Chappie, which is also not good. No. <laughs> um, and I, I have to go like, how did you do this so well once? All three of these movies are kind of the same thing thematically and story-wise. It's always mm-hmm. like a segregated people and a non-segregated people and a class system and fighting this classist idea. And your backdrop for it worked really well with District 9 it just didn't quite click with the other ones. Well, yeah, and that's an issue, too, is if you find a director like Blomkamp with his with, with the example of his three major studio films, if you keep going back to the same themes, hoping it's going to work again, you know, chances of that happening aren't very good because you've already sort of said what you wanted to say with the film that was successful. Right. You know, which is why a lot of these directors, like... One of my favorite examples, being a horror fan, is John Carpenter because John Carpenter did he attempted so many different genres, you right. know, between between like uh, Halloween and Big Trouble in Little China and even fucking Starman, which is like a sci-fi romance, you know, like he he was always looking for something different to say and do. Same with Wes Craven, always did something unique and different. But yeah, if you're tackling the same concepts at their core over and over again. The audience is going to get tired of that. It's even why, this is a small tangent, so I won't go on too long about it, but it's why it's very odd that James Gunn is going to make a Suicide Squad movie and a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. And you're like, oh, you're Uh, making the same movie for two studios. Right, because Suicide Squad is basically the Guardians of the Galaxy for DC. (laughs) Right. Uh, But it's like, yeah, even Josh Trank is just, that Chronicle was the Fantastic Four. Yeah. And then he did that, but then also, like, took... Chronicle wasn't a one-to-one of the Fantastic Four, but it had a lot of the same, you know, linear ideas. Uh-huh. But then when he got his hands on the actual FF, he, like, didn't look up what makes them special. It just was like, they'll be Chronicle again. Well, and, and remind me, because it's been a while. I've only seen Southland Tales once because I hate that movie. Um, well, not hate. That's a strong word. But I don't like it. It's a mess. Re- remind me, Southland Tales, like Donnie Darko, deals with time loops and stuff like time that, right? travel what is real our perception so, of reality right so yeah so again I, I think if i had to sum up easily with what 
causes these slumps, 90% of the time, it's, again, because they're revisiting what worked the first time instead of doing something different like we've seen Peel do with us. And I think even the audience wants you to do something different. They don't want to sit down and And, be like, oh, this, he says the same. It's like a friend at a party who's always like, remember the 1985 Bears? And to be be fair, you know, I want to be fair to the directors here. It's not always on them because a lot of times when you have uh, a big film like this blow up, you're going to get pigeonholed and you're going to have a studio come to you and say, hey, look, I'm going to give you this blank check to do a movie because I loved your last one, but I'm hiring you to do the same thing. Like a lot of times studios, like, like if you direct a horror film and it's successful, all of a sudden every studio looks at you as the horror guy. They look at you as nothing else. You know, it even happens with careers out here. Like I'm in reality TV. I get looked at as being the reality TV guy. Nothing else. That was my, uh, my directing teacher in LA was like, be careful the first job you take because it's the job you'll take. And exactly. And forever. Exactly. And so I think that you see that problem too, where it's like studios are then hiring these directors and being like, hey, you made Donnie Darko? Okay, now give us Donnie Darko. Right. You know, instead of give us something new, which is what they should be doing. <laughs> and it's interesting because a lot of directors, you know, James Cameron, David Fincher, and one of those is on my second list, have a lot of the same concepts in their movies or like kind of themes or ideas or motifs. Sure. But it's never a one-to-one of their last movie. Like you could argue that there's similar ideas in Terminator 2 that are in Avatar and Titanic. But Mm. all three of those, whether or not you, you know, take it or leave it, are very different movies. Right. Uh, but they all have ideas of of fate and controlling fate. and uh, But that does bring me to the ones who avoided the sophomore slump. Mm-hmm. Unless you have more additions for, for for the ones who failed to. Oh, no, it. no. That's okay. about what I had. Well, I mean, I could, I'm sure I could pull out more. But I those mean, we could do examples. another hour and a half. On, <laughs> <laughs> we, could, we could do a whole podcast on just being like, at least you have to District 9. Right. Um, but the ones who avoided it, I have Catherine Bigelow, Near Dark, to The Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. Ryan Coogler, Fruitvale Station to Creed, and then David Fincher, Alien Three, which I did not know that was his first feature until I was looking this up. Yep, uh, and then Seven, and all you know, counterpoint to what I was saying earlier, all of those are pretty different movies, especially Near Dark to The Hurt Locker is just well, of course you avoided it, you did something else entirely, and there was right. what two decades in between. That those movies, I could be that doesn't sound right. There was time though, a lot of time. There was time, I don't know, maybe, well, I don't know about two decades, maybe. So was, yeah, <laughs> I'd have to look up the years, but uh, I think all three of those people are taking their style. I mean, both Alien 3 and 7 are very green movies, he likes that color a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, green, kind of orangish, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, there's that, that tint, but such different. Ideas and one of them, even right. he kind of flipped the script. A lot of people that we talk about get a huge, do a really good indie movie, and then a huge franchise. He got a huge franchise, and then made his small movie. Right. Uh, so I think that you know shows range. I think Ryan Coogler is the closest to Fruitvale Station and Creed being similar, but also still very different. But they still have this you know rising above idea that he even brought into Black Panther and. The idea of legacy is in all of these movies that he does, but all three of those have such a unique tone and the visual texture to it, and the performances even are become unique and change. Michael B. Jordan is not doing the same thing mm. in Creed that he's doing in Black Panther. 
Right. <laughs> which would be very strange. But oh, I would watch that movie. I'd watch that movie. It'd be, it'd be different, though. <laughs> Killmonger in the Rocky movies. Yeah. Um, did you have any for that I, list? Or? I do, yeah. So some that I can mention that avoided that slump. Um, in a little bit different way, because these aren't all necessarily huge box office hits, but more just uh, successful films in terms of their reception. So, right. So, like, you know, I, I got John Carpenter, uh, his first film, if you want. And you can acknowledge either one of these and consider the next one incredible. Is His first film technically is Dark Star. He wanted to do Assault on Precinct 13, which garnered a huge cult following right. afterwards. Or if you want to look at, Salt as a, at Assault as his first film, Halloween came after that. We know how that went. Uh, Wes Craven did Last House on the Left, followed by The Hills Have Eyes, which had a very small budget and made a shit ton of money. Yeah. Um, ironically though, with Craven after the Hills have eyes, he actually struggled for a bit to get his next movie, which ended up being nightmare on Elm street, uh, which is strange to me because Hills have eyes did do so well. Uh, every now and then there's small things like that where you're like, why, why aren't we just throwing money at this person? Right. Exactly. Well, both of them last house on the left and Hills have eyes were huge films when they came out. And for some reason he just struggled being able to sell nightmare. But anyway, uh, and then Toby Hooper, now, I had never actually heard of this film until I was taking a look at him, but uh, Hooper's an interesting character because I guess he did a feature called Eggshells as his first, like, full feature movie. Never seen it. I, I have no idea if it's yeah, good or not. Yeah, new to me. <laughs> right, but then he followed that up with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, but if you look at Texas Chainsaw as his first big movie, then he's a little bit of an odd case because then he did Eaten Alive after, which... Most of us have forgotten about at right. this point, other than the fact that there's Robert England in it. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know that there's necessarily anything to find in these examples in terms of what they did right, other than just trying to again do something different. I was going to say, statement. well, they they're all challenging those own directors' style that they made. So there was right. it almost feels like in each one there was an effort to grow as yep. a filmmaker and as a as a prof- and I think this can extend beyond entertainment. If you're going to sure. just sit in a retail job and do the same thing over and over again, you're not going to move up to a manager position. No. <laughs> like you yeah. do have to kind of keep you always, challenging and building. You always have to challenge yourself. You always have to take risks. And I, I think I think risk is the key word here, both for the slump and for achieving success, is that when we're more talking about the ones who fell into the slump, it seems like the thing we're focused on is, well, did they take a big enough risk with the next movies? Or did they try to sort of retread what they had done? Right. For, for whatever reason, whether it was their own decision or the studio's. And then you look at the ones who avoid it, Jordan Peele and the other ones we've mentioned, it seems like the big thing there is, well, they're taking the risk of doing something different. And maybe that doesn't always work, but it seems like for the most part, if they're a talented director, you're going to get a pretty solid film out of it. Right. And I think that's the other weird part with the sophomore slump is every now and then you do just have the outlier of like, eh, you got it right once. And then it turned out you weren't that great. Yeah. Like, well, there's always the one hit wonders, you know, the big, that's a big thing with music, but <laughs> yeah, there's, and there's always like a bigger picture. You can go back to Neil Blomkamp and be like, well, district nine, he had concept art from the halo movie and he had Peter Jackson helping him out of it on his own. He just didn't make it happen. But right. That's neither here nor there. I think we're all in agreement that Jordan Peele avoided it for all the reasons that we've said. This is a risk. It's different. It, it's interesting because I, I think he did and he didn't. I, I think he did 
for me and for yeah. you definitely in the sense and for a lot of us in the sense that he did he went out and did something different he was successful with it uh, i think a lot of us will end up agreeing on that but you are definitely going to see those out there who don't look at it that way and might consider the fact that Peel took too much of a risk maybe in doing something different or or there were too high of expectations because of Get Out. I mean, I think that know? was what the biggest thing he had facing him was, was just every step of the... Even after Get Out came out, we were it, praising him as the next master of horror. We're, we're praising him as the next master of horror. He's given he's given all of these TV shows to showrun all of a sudden. He, a first time out uh, horror director, wins the, the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Like, this shit... Being a horror fan, I can tell you, that doesn't happen. Ever. Right. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, for God's sakes, I, I was talking about Aliens the other day on my show, and I, I looked up the fact that Aliens had seven Academy Awards, wasn't nominated for Best Fic- Picture, wasn't nominated for Best Screenplay, you know? So, like, it's just you do not see uh, a horror film get that much attention as Get Out did. And so, yeah, no, the expectations were incredibly high. Um, so, but, but yes, I think if you ask me, he... he overcame that it, yeah it certainly lived up we have one other guy in 2019 in horror approaching his sophomore yes. slump and that's uh ari aster ari aster uh, i always say ari, ari but aster. I, either way <laughs> uh doing midsummer uh, following up hereditary yeah do we think he's gonna fall succeed have you you've seen the trailer for I midsummer have. yeah yes of course um so you know going into tonight uh, I was probably going to end up saying that I think that he will succeed only because I, I look at Ari Aster as being a visionary. Right. And and when you look at that trailer for Midsommar, it's it's quite different, you know? And so wh- whether or not that ends up hurting him by, again, having that possibility of being too risky and too unrelatable to an audience, I look at that and I think... It looks like he did something different. Well, he's at least challenging himself, and that seems to be the the thing that we've landed on right. to do. But then, but then there's the one small part where I'm like, I'll have to wait and see because it's just a trailer. But I look at this trailer, and Midsommar actually, I think, is going to end up having a lot of similar themes to Hereditary in the sense that it appears to deal with uh, these sort of cultish ideas. Right. Because um, Midsommar, if you look at it, really just looks like a modern-day Wicker Man. It looks like the Far Cry 5 adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> or that. <laughs> and so I was like, ah, oh, this is like the third act of a Far Cry 5, unless you played it in a different order than I did, <laughs> but the, the girl. <laughs> yeah, but but no, it, it absolutely looks like uh, Wicker Man, which is all about a cult, you know, sacrificing people to their god. And when I look at the Midsummer trailer, it's very bright and cultish and Jim Jones Kool-Aid-ish. And <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't know. It could end up retreading just a tad but no i i'm still confident that i think ari's gonna break through with something special yeah he'll be fine yeah amazing so i think the last thing to touch on then is this box office incredible amazing so it you know right out of the gate it's thursday night was huge it was already outpacing the nun it was right behind halloween yeah which to me i predict at work we do a dumb box office prediction and i i batted a little low and i said 55 which to be fair would have still put it at the third highest r rated horror <laughs> that, movie that would opening. have still been very good <laughs> right uh i was wrong um 
$70,250,000 opening weekend in 3,741 theaters. Comparing that to Get Out's $33 million, Jordan Peele is now a name. I think we talk yeah. a lot about like the marketability of a movie and does a director's name really do anything? And I, I definitely, I, I often, think I think it does for a very few, like a small number. I think yeah. now the number of directors that get you into a theater is, is smaller than it used to be. But I think Jordan Peele is now one of maybe the five where I'm like, if you just slap his name on it, people are rolling in. It is. I agree. So like, so it's an interesting point to make. Um, going back to Ari Aster, I think if you were to, you know, you ask you or me that question, do you know who Ari Aster is? Yeah, of course. You know, right. we're, we're obsessed with film. I think if you go out into the street, though, and pull somebody off who, you know, just goes to movies occasionally and doesn't really pay attention that much, you're like, hey, you going to see the new Ari Aster movie? Who? Right. But you look at somebody like Jordan Peele, John Carpenter, James Wan, those are household names. Everything they do is going to get some kind of attention. Uh, and maybe Aster will too if Midsummer ends up being hugely successful. But um, yeah, I think this box office proves, if anything, that if you didn't think Jordan Peele was the next master or modern master of horror before, you can put that away now because he absolutely is. It has solidified. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I'd have to really go back and look at like the March numbers, but. Captain Marvel's in its third week, mm-hmm. and I, that's usually about the time when a Marvel movie drops to second. But it is still crazy that right. it rose above that. Like right. that that movie also gangbusters at the box office, an insurmountable amount of money. But right. this does put it, if people are curious now, the number one R-rated mo- horror movie, still it at 123 million, followed by Halloween 2018 at 76 million, and then Us. Then right. rounding out the top five is The Nun and Paranormal it, Activity. It, it is, however, hmm. the highest grossing original R-rated movie. Woo! <laughs> uh, I do want to throw in there, I'm not sure if this is something you want to touch on or not, but uh, going along with name recognition, I, I don't want to take away from how important a film like Us is as well. So I have you seen uh, the documentary Horror Noir on Shudder? I haven't. Okay, well, I'll mention it here for your listeners because I think it's very important to go check this out if you can. So on Shutter, which is a, a horror streaming service, I think it costs like five bucks a month, I don't know, but it's great. Definitely subscribe if you're in the horror. But uh, they dropped a film called Horror Noir uh, about a month or two ago, and what this film does is it explains uh, the way that black people and culture have been portrayed in horror films, essentially from you know the 1900s to now, And the first line to open up that documentary broke my heart because it was, um, oh God, I forget who says it in the beginning, but uh, I think it's a journalist who has a line where she says, um, we've always loved the horror genre, but it hasn't always loved us, you know, and, and that thought of loving something so much where you don't see yourself represented just killed me. And it talks about that all throughout the documentary on how, Black culture, even when during the time when we got to black exploitation, even then the culture was seeing themselves on screen, but still not being properly represented because they were portrayed as, you know, essentially like badass hookers and gangsters, which right. that's not every black person, you know, like so. Uh, so what I think is very important here and that you're seeing in the box office is it really wasn't until Get Out that you were seeing a horror film 
that not only was it just not only was it about and starring a black person in horror, but it's a film that was just showing a person being a fucking person. You know, like right. the like the main character in Get Out is just a guy. You know, there's nothing like stereotyping him or anything like that. And so I think when you look at a film like Us, it makes sense to me that I that you're seeing such a huge box office because this is finally a time where we're seeing, you know, a black family on screen just being a black family. <laughs> right. You know, in a horror film. So it, to me, it's monumentous. And I, I think I, I think that's especially important for Jordan Peele and what we're seeing him doing. So, well, I think you nailed kind of the last bit of why is this oh. movie important? And that, I okay, think, well, there I we think, go. <laughs> I think everything you just said is true. I think it's also important to have movies that become this thought provoking. Yeah. I don't think every movie needs to have me walk out and be like, oh, the state of our country. But it's no, nice but... sometimes to get that conversation going. See, it, it, I don't want to walk out of every film thinking of something like politics, per se. But I do think that, you know, there's something to be said for walking out of a film and having something to talk about. Well, I want right. Know? I want to be thinking about something, right? right. I want to move. I think a movie, art, music, whatever it is, should have some something to say, and something unique, and it can be as simple as like a Marvel movie that's just like, "Hey, go be a good person. Right. Don't be a dick." And you're like, yeah. "All right, fair enough, got it." Or it can be as nuanced as this, where it's mm. like, "Oh, you know these." the things that we suppress can rise, destroy us, and we only unite in terror. And it, and you're like, oh, man. Especially, to me, horror and sci-fi are the yeah. two genres that should speak to like our well, climate a little they, bit. They do it the best, and this is, this is why I've always been such a huge horror fan, is because it's a bit... So, I want to crush a term on your show right now. Oh, please do. Because <laughs> I, I know what you're going to say and I hate it. Okay. I the, ele- the elevated horror thing? The yes. worst thing we've come up with as a nation. Yeah, no. Dude, okay. so That's I, what us is about. We shouldn't be saying elevated <laughs> horror. The horror literally elevated from the ground and it was awful and it ruined everything. No, li- listen, man. I, I'm, I'm very wrapped up in the horror community on a daily basis and I can tell you the one thing that hardcore horror fans are always complaining about right now is this concept of elevated horror. This is nothing new. Stop saying it. Horror, since the time it was created, until now, has always, always been about something else than what you're seeing on screen. Always. Now, I 100% agree with you. Can I play a small devil's advocate? Yes, you can. (laughs) And I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, but could you maybe think it's another marketing tool, obviously. Is it them trying to kind of get rid of the, uh, I guess, stigma that horror is like dumb and campy and silly and they're trying to be like, guys, no, this is like a really good movie. So this is where, yeah, so this is where I do get conflicted with a little bit because for for whatever, for whatever reason, you know, like I remember growing up um, and I, I hope it's not like this now and I don't think it is, but... Growing up, if you were into horror films, you were weird, you liked trash, they were, no, they were not respected, the Academy still doesn't respect them. Um, and, you know, for so long, there's been this stigma that horror films are just dumb, uh, trashy, stupid movies that freaks go to watch like me or whatever. Um, and 
somewhere along the way, this idea started coming around that, oh, well, horror's intelligent now, and it's elevated now, and it's like, no, it's always fucking been that way. I mean, for God's sakes, go as far back to, like, Rosemary's Baby, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Like, those movies are about something, you right. know? Um, so it, to answer your question, is it to help sell it? Yes and no, because the one thing that I will say is that... Uh, Something I have noticed in the horror genre lately, which is maybe why this term elevated began to come around, is all throughout the decades, you've seen, like, horror's always been elevated, but you've seen a smaller handful coming out that was really like us, in the sense that you would walk out and there's layer after layer after layer to unwrap that just general audiences are discussing, um, and you would see a larger majority of the trashier horror films because horror is the genre that's easy to get into. It's easy to make money. So you often see the, and this isn't to, this isn't to, you know, criticize anyone, but you often see the, maybe the less talented filmmakers or the people looking for an easier way in right. doing horror because that's a genre where it's like, okay, I'm going to make a stupid horror movie and it'll sell and make money. Um, now you're you're seeing less of that where you're seeing more and more horror films it's almost as if fans like myself have grown up and been like listen you're gonna stop talking about horror like it doesn't matter and mean anything and now you're seeing horror filmmakers like the majority of them are coming out and be like i'm gonna make this important movie that's gonna get you talking and be about something and they're taking themselves seriously i think that's what the big difference is right We've always seen horror just be really silly and fun and entertaining. And I think you're seeing more and more films now really trying to make a statement, it feels like, where it's like, we are a serious genre meant to be taken and meant to be taken uh, seriously and looked at with respect. And I just, I think you're seeing more of that now. But I still yeah. hate the fucking elevator it's horror awful. term. <laughs> it's awful. It's the same. Yeah. It's like about to start happening with superhero movies when they're like going up for Oscar now too, where they're like, well, you know, this is like Logan and the dark Knight. It's really it, like an intelligent. And you know what? I hate to say it, but I, I was one of those people when infinity war came out is one of my first thoughts to myself was like, Oh look, Marvel's taking risks and doing something intelligent. Now which is a smart super. It's like, ah, oh, shut up. Right. No, but, but you're right. Like th these things are always happening. You know, it's just like we, we like to find little boxes to put it in to make sense of it. Right. No, yeah, we want to do that. It'd be like, oh, no, it's a, it, it was a successful movie because we said Elevated Horror. That was the extra $30 million in this weekend. Right. That's not true. Right. <laughs> if, if there is one big horror difference besides taking themselves a little more seriously, it's diversity. That, right. That's a huge thing That's we're your extra $30 million. Right. That's your extra $30 million is diversity not just in, um, you know, not just in the color of our skin, but also... Uh, sexual orientation, all that kind of stuff. I just watched a movie called Book of... Sorry, I'm tangenting oh, here, but I just watched a movie called Book of Monsters the other day um, from a director named Stuart Spark uh, coming out through Dread. And what was great about that film, it, you know, the film itself is just a fun, uh, simple little practical effects monster movie. Right. But what's great about it is the main character in it is a lesbian hero who is trying to save her girlfriend. And, and the, what's great is the movie doesn't make any commentary 
really whatsoever on the fact that she is a lesbian. She just is. Right. It doesn't make it a part of her, you know, it's not like the main focus of her character and that's all she is, is just a lesbian, you know? So you're seeing more of that in horror. We're really expanding what kind of stories are we telling and what sort of characters are we putting out there. So Well put. All right. We're almost at the two-hour mark, so we're going to get us out of here. Uh, This was Hollywood Already Did It. And it was great. So leave us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at HollywoodADI, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash group slash HollywoodAlreadyDidIt, or on Instagram at HollywoodAlreadyDidIt. Uh, and Matt has a podcast out weekly now? Yes. So I have um, I have a podcast out weekly. It's called Killer Horror Critic. Uh, on it, essentially, the main goal is I interview filmmakers, writers, uh, actors, actresses, all, all from all, all spectrums of horror uh, to talk about some of their favorite horror films and touch a little bit on what they're working on. Uh, I also have a site, KillerHorrorCritic.com. That's where you can find the podcasts and all the links it's streaming at. Uh, as well as reviews and news pieces that I do for horror films. So, yeah, definitely check it out, and please leave. If you listen to the show, leave me a review and ratings on iTunes as well. (laughs) Great. All right. We will see everyone next time.